As you see before you, I want to talk with you about some scriptures that I probably talked too much about in my time as a preacher from Ephesians chapter 4. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Ephesians is, and especially certain sections of this book that are the practical sections of the book. I'm going to talk about changing your life. All of us want to improve our lives, but the kind of change that the Bible talks about in our life, a lot of people aren't willing to make when it comes down to it. Or the more modern idea about Christianity is that you don't really have to change, that, that God kind of just accepts you the way you are. And so as long as you come and you say you believe in Jesus, you just kind of go along your way and everything will work out fine. God will perform miracles in your personality and in your inclinations and all your lusts and, and devices and dishonesty. That will all just disappear somehow. It doesn't work like that. That's the popular religious thinking of the day, though, that somehow this will all take care of itself. And that when a person like me stands up here and tells you you need to stop lying and stop cheating and stop committing adultery, that that's uh, called moralism, moralistic teaching. Well, okay, if that's what it is, I plead guilty to that. And I'll plead guilty without any problem at all to that idea of if, if that's what you call moralistic, because that's exactly what the Bible says for you to do. So we're going to look at this text of the Bible Hope that matters to you. I think it will matter to all of you. What the text says for you to do about how to change your life. You see, we talked about this last week. Is why I want to do this this week. That that the scriptures portray changing your life, not as just stopping doing something that's wrong. That's essential. That's important because you can't get on the right path until you stop going down the wrong path. And the only way back to the right path, turn around, go back, and find the right path. You can't just veer off somewhere. Or just do something different. You've got to do something that makes it makes a difference in the right way. And so stopping doing what's wrong is a start. It's where you have to start when you become a Christian. And maybe many more times in your life from the very beginning. You've got to stop what you're doing and reevaluate things. And then you've got to find the right way to do something. If you want to teach your children how to be productive and, and adults that please God. You have to teach them what not to do, but you also have to show them what to do to, to do what is right and how to be active in that. And that makes all the difference in the world. But we often are involved in both ends of the process. There, and religion, human religions and people have always been the same. There have always been uh, denominations or religions that focus on the negative of what you have to stop doing. And they end up in the long run being hollowed out uh, sometimes very very negative type churches, as it were. And then there's those that only want to talk about the positive. Just do good things. Just have a just have a good heart. As long as your intentions are good and you feel good and, and you say you love Jesus, everything will be fine. We, we had a call from a lady on the radio show this morning, and I, I, I'm not attributing all this to her, but made me think of it uh, as we were talking. And she, she, is, she was defending the Roman Catholic Church and their traditions, and she was saying that, you know, uh, saying several things about that. And and the idea was she was saying, well, they love Catholics, love Jesus. I, I said, well, you're missing my point a little bit. I never said anybody didn't love Jesus. I said that what's being taught and practiced is wrong. It doesn't matter how much you love Jesus. You say you if you don't won't do what Jesus says in the right way. None of that. All that other stuff matters. And so in the long run, you can even question someone love, someone's love when they will not follow what the Bible says. So let's look at this passage. 
Enough of, of a so-called introduction. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Well, what a list of words that is. This is not nice. This is a very harsh description of certain kinds of people and the way people live. There's nothing nice about this. In fact, some oh, this sounds very unchristian. Paul must have been bringing out his inner Pharisee to talk like this. Well, no, he, he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he says that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles, those outside of Christ walk. And, and that's where they once were, outside of Christ. The walking here, the word, uh, we get the word perspicacious from this. I know you use that word all the time, don't you? It means to, it means to walk around. It, it means, this is talking about your everyday walking around activities and what you think and what you do in your everyday walking around life. It's how you live. It isn't what you feel in your heart. But he says that you can't live and continue to do the, way, the things that you used to do and the things that your Gentile friends are doing. And he says, because they live in the futility of their mind. Futility has a, a basic meaning of being something that's empty or pointless or that passes away. But it's, it came to mean, in the way it's used here, something that is of itself evil and non, non-productive because it's wrong. It's incorrect and it is immoral. And so the Gentiles walk in the future. They are trying to get somewhere. They're trying to be happy. They're trying to do something. But since they are doing the wrong thing, it turns out to be pointless. And that's the futility of their mind. And then they had their their understanding darkened. There's no light here. I read the other day, uh, where was I reading? That... uh, Oh, it was about Christmas. You'll love this. That we have to stop talking, it said, this article said, about some some religious scholar from some high-up denomination. We, we have to stop talking about light and darkness at Christmas, you know, the Christmas star and then the darkness of the night, because that's racist to talk about light and dark. I wonder what it means in John 1 where it says the light shone in the darkness. It, it, Shown with the darkness could not overcome it. The picture in the Bible of darkness is not about skin color or race. Race isn't even in the Bible. The picture here is darkness where you can't see what you're doing. You have to fumble around and feel your way around because you can't see what's going on around you. You're unaware of this. Of this. And so he says their understanding is darkened. It's got nothing to do with race. It's the idea that it's so dark that they really don't understand. They think they understand, but they really don't understand. And you ask people, what's a woman? They don't know the answer. Their understanding is darkened, or they fumble for an answer. That's real long. They, they, their understanding is darkened. It's much different than the, to those who have the light. And because their understanding is darkened, they claim to be very intelligent, but in the, in, in the end, 
it comes it comes away as being not very intelligent and, and they're alienated from the life of God. God brings life. That's what He did in the book of Genesis. He created light and darkness and said the light. He called the light good and He said then let there be light and then a few a little bit later in the chapter He said He created life. That's what He does. The devil destroys and kills. God gives life. And they're alienated from that. That's why sometimes we talk about the culture of death. Because certain elements of our society are focused on death. They don't like people. They do not like life. They want to end life before it begins. And they want, and they want to end life at the end. Now in Canada and some parts of Europe, it is perfectly legal to give suicide drugs, doctors give suicide drugs to young teenagers who are depressed or people who are sick. They can give them. Can, can you imagine? Really, if you applied, if you gave every teenager who's depressed suicide drugs, how many would be left? Pretty few, pretty small number, including most of you and me, would be left. This is this is the culture of death. Killing your offspring before they're born because you decide that they're too much trouble or that they might have trouble in life, you kill them. And we call this a celebrate. We have a celebration then about that. This is a culture of death. And I, I am, I'm opposed to it personally. I know you've heard me talk about that. I might get uh, a little bit too carried away about some of that, but I am not going to apologize for being in favor of life because human beings left to their own are alienated from the life of God. God wants more people. He wants more life, not less. And yet we have whole sections of our society that are trying to destroy life because they judge that it isn't worthwhile. They judge that. What is it? Who is it? Stephen Curry? Is it Stephen Curry? That famous athlete? who was, uh, mother was supposed to abort him, but didn't in the last minute. We got whole, we got whole, I mean, there's an encyclopedia of people like that today who have, who were not aborted when they were told to abort them and the contributions they've made. Now, I'm sure there are some serial killers the same way. I'm sure about that, but, but that, but God brings life. And it says, they do these things because of the ignorance that is in them. It, to call something ignorant, it, me and my brothers, we'd call each other ignorant. We were trying to throw insults at each other. But that's not what the, the word ignorant is not an insult per se. It's a description of someone. who It just simply means in Greek, do not know. I do not know. So when someone is ignorant, they say they're ignorant. That means you simply don't know. There are lots of things I don't know. And other people do know, but I'm ignorant about a lot of things, and so are you, strangely enough. So you're ignorant. I can say that with all assurance. You're ignorant about certain things. But these people, in this description, have a general ignorance in them that they simply do not know what is true. Jesus called the people of his day sheep without a shepherd. They were just wandering around. They didn't really have an idea of what was going on in life. And there's a lot of people like that, whole section of our society from top to bottom, from very elite down to the poorest, 
who simply go through life and they simply do not know what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. They, they don't know. It's a sad thing. It's a very sad thing. And we can attribute a lot of that to maybe their upbringing and all this kind of stuff, but uh, it's ignorance. And then they are blind in their heart. Blindness in their heart. The trouble with blindness of the heart is it is generally self-inflicted. My, one of my best friends in life, preacher in California, we've been friends since we were teenagers. He's blind. He ran this counter for the blind out there. He's blind. His blindness came on in life. It wasn't his choice. But the blindness that God is talking about here is, is the choice of people. They just don't want to see what the truth is. And so they, they ignore what's right before their eyes, the moral choices that they make. And it says they're past feeling. They used to be able to feel, but now they're past feeling. They don't even respond to this. And they've given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. The idea of, of lewdness here. It isn't just sexual. It's a broader word in Greek. It includes the sexual uh, lewdness. We use it mostly that way in our in modern English. But it, it's aselgi. It's the idea of no limits. The idea of lewdness or lasciviousness in the Bible, in in the original Greek, was something that doesn't have limits. So their their passions and their d- personal desires. Don't really have limits to them. They never, they don't never know what they're going to go to next. They're pushing the envelope all the time, and they're willing to go way beyond. This is a lewd person. It, it manifests itself in sexuality, certainly. It manifests itself in drug abuse and, and intoxication and things like that. But it manifests itself in a lot of other ways too. They just don't know where any kind of limits are. And it says then they work this uncleanness. You know what uncleanness means? Uh, what's a cathartic? If a doctor gives you a well, Gary had a catheterization of the heart. That means to clean out. A catheter is put in to flush out that which is unclean. Okay? And so you, uh, you put a catheter in, unclean stuff comes out. And to, a cath- to catheterize something means to bring out the uncleanness. To cut a wound, open it, extract all the uncleanness. This is the off. Catharsis. This is the un, unpurged, still full of filth. So a bowel that's still full of what shouldn't be there and filled up and about to burst is this word, unclean. It's swollen up. It's full of uncleanness, that which is destructive, that which is putrefied. And he says they work this uncleanness in their life with greediness. This is the simple word for they want more and more and nothing is ever enough. Nothing is ever enough and never will be. Now, the other way to talk about this greediness that is popular today, uh, that's being mocked, is the idea of a slippery slope. The slope just keeps getting, you know, and, and it gets faster and faster because the reason it's getting faster and faster the moral decay of our society is because people are working this uncleanness with greediness and they don't slow down. They get faster and faster. And so there it is. We see this ahead of us. And so Paul says, you cannot live 
like this. You cannot participate in this mentality. And he's using the extreme end of it. But you need to stop doing this as Christians. You can't do it. And yet there are people all over the country that call themselves Christians who participate in this and approve of this way of thinking and denominations that take official positions on all this uncleanness and they take the official position which the Bible expressly condemns. I will make no apology for condemning that because it needs to be condemned because the Apostle Paul condemned it. So he gives this description of, of these people. They have a futile mind. Their understanding is dark and alienated from the life of God. They're, they have, have ignorance in their heart. They're, they're blind and so forth. And then he, he says that Christ makes the difference. Because in verse 20 it says, But you did not so learn Christ. If you call yourself a Christian and you want to be a Christian, you have to understand, you didn't learn this from Christ. You learned the opposite from Christ, the way society... And, and we, have to, we just have to come to some understanding. We've preached about it so many times, I, I'm almost apologetic about it. That at almost in whatever age that you've lived in, even past ages, even the 1950s in America, where everybody thinks it's so wonderful, and maybe there was some good things about it, the common culture did not reflect the teachings of Jesus Christ. Okay? There were just different sins than we have today. Today it's more blatantly immoral, but there were different sins that were pushed forward in the 50s and 60s and 40s, 50s, 60s than are today. But you didn't learn, you didn't learn Christ from the common culture. You learned a version maybe of Christ. You learned what the, you think. But in the end, what you learn from the common culture, whether it's in the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Middle Ages, or, or Christianity, or, uh, the so-called Christian nations today, you learn culture's version of Christ, but you didn't learn what really Christ said until you get into the text of the Scriptures. And so you didn't learn this from Christ. Don't call yourself a Christian and parade around like you are when you want to live like that and think like that. And goes on, he goes on to say here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him. Now the word if here, I've talked about these conditional words in, in the original language. This is more meaning since. I suppose it could be if meaning that you say you become a Christian, but and so if you have, then you need to do this. Maybe that's what it means. But probably you could translate it since you have heard him. You say you're a Christian, you've heard the Lord. And you've been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, then he says, you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Two things, there's what I'm talking about. you got to put off the old man, put on the new man. This is the central concept of the actual practicality of becoming a Christian. That's what you have to have in mind. I think the first impulse to become a Christian has to be, I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I, I need to be saved from my condition. I've offended the God of heaven. I am condemned in my behavior. I need to be saved. That's your first impulse. And so you fall at the feet of Jesus, and he says, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So you want to have your sins forgiven? You want to be forgiven of this? He tells you what to do in Acts 2 and many other places. To repent, to turn away from the way you've been living, and be baptized, be buried with him, and, and 
die to your sin, die to this old way of life, put it to death. You die to it. You're buried with Christ. When you come up out of that grave with Christ, you're made in his image then. But that doesn't mean that you are in his image in the final sense. Because he's talking to people that have already done that. This book was written to people that have already been baptized. And he's telling them, you have to keep putting this off. Keep putting off this old man and put on the new man. Because we're just beginning. When you when you come up out of the waters of baptism, you're just beginning then to fight all this problem. Fight this. And don't let people fool you that are sitting in the pew and you think they've got... The, sometimes people walk in and sit like this. Maybe they've been struggling in their life or they feel alienated or they, they feel like they need help. And so they come into us. Similar like this, and they see all these nice shiny people here. Oh, these people got their act together. They're all so perfect. I don't. I, I can't ever be like that. Uh, let me disabuse you of that notion. I know these people. No, we're all in the same place. Some of us are further along that journey. Some of us have more experience in trying to put this old man to death and put on the new man. The truth is we're all involved in this process. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I've been a Christian since 1966. How many years is that? I don't even know anymore. So old. I can't count that high. Take it off my shoes and socks two or three times to count that high. But anyway, four or five times. But the point is, it's still there. In fact, in some ways, I feel the struggle more now than I did when I was first baptized. I feel the, the importance of this and, and sometimes the struggle of this. So it's going to begin. You're not in any really different place when you come into an assembly like this if you're just beginning or you want to start than the other people that are here. They just have had more experience at it. So he says you need to do this. You need to put off concerning your former conduct the old man. That's why in the book of 1 Corinthians he can tell the people, some of you were homosexuals and murderers and liars and so forth, but, but you've been washed. You've been cleaned. You were these things. I may have mentioned this at a uh, in our devotional last Sunday night at the house. That one of the I, I think AA and NA, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, I think they're good programs. I think they can help people, and I've recommended them to people and, and participated in in the Naranon and Alanon uh, before, which is for the family members of those who are abusers. I participate in those things, and I understand a little bit about that. I think it has a lot of good to be said for it. But what I'm going to say now, but you know, you always say but then, don't you? So don't take that what I'm going to say now as a complete complete uh, disavowal of that. But I do, don't, I, I do reject the idea that they put forward that once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. Or once you're an addict, you're always going to be an addict. I, I know that you, why you would feel that way when you first start to recover. But the point of the whole thing, the point of Bible recovery is so that you're not an addict anymore. You need to become not an addict, not an alcoholic, okay? Not an adulterer, not a fornicator. Not a, uh, you, you're going to become not that. And that's what these verses are saying here. You were that, but now you're this in Christ. And so you can be, the, that's hope. That's hope to you. It's hopeless to say, well, I'm always going to be an addict. It's hopeful to say, you're going to struggle. There can come a time, there can come a time when you're not anymore. Might you always have to be aware of certain temptations? Yes, you might. Because you have temptations that are suited to your background, body chemistry, upbringing, everything else that, that fit you. And those temptations will always be there. But they're there for everybody. 
you should learn along the way how to defeat that. So you need to put off this former conduct, this old man that you used to be, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. It, it, it doesn't. See, this is the slippery slope. It gets worse. If you don't correct these deceitful lusts that you have that are fooling you all the time and you refuse to even acknowledge them or deal with them, they're not going to get better. They're going to get worse. Much like if you leave a wound, time does not heal all wounds. Time infects most wounds. Okay, If you don't treat it, the chances are it's going to become infected by time with time, not better by time. And if it does heal, it'll heal in some grotesque manner that uh, isn't pleasant either. So be careful about this because your lusts are deceitful. And he says, then be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Your whole mind needs to change. I think the number one thing that has to change in modern thinking hasn't. This is a this is a kind of a new thing. If you, we talked a little bit about this maybe sometime last summer. Some of our sermons on on the modern culture. I forgot even what they're called. You can look them up on the internet. But the, there is a difference philosophically as to what most people today think than there was, say, in the Middle Ages or even even 150 years ago. We think because we live in, in modern culture, we think certain things, and that's true for everybody. You can't escape it because you're like a fish in water. Your water's all around you. And so it's easy to pick this stuff up. We Christians have to fight a lot of that and disabuse ourselves of those notions because they're destructive, ungodly notions. The idea that goes out in modern culture that permeates everything else that's ever said or done politically, socially, economically, Everything about every teaching, about every relationship is that you have an autonomous right to do whatever you want. You are the only thing that makes a difference. Your happiness, your self-satisfaction, your happiness is the way you determine everything else about your life. If it, if it makes me happy, it's right. must be good. makes me unhappy, must be bad. Got a person in your life that makes you unhappy? Get rid of that person in your life. Even though the Bible tells you that you need to love your father or mother and help this person, you have to make it, you make a choice. I don't like them anymore. You're married to somebody and you don't want them in your life anymore, you get rid of them. So you can be happy. So you can be fulfilled. You don't want to be pregnant? Get rid of it. You don't want your girlfriend to be pregnant? Pay for it and get rid of it. Why? Why do we say those kind of things? Because... We've come to believe the notion that your own individual personal happiness trumps everything else. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Don't let anything stand in the way of your dreams and your heart. So whatever makes you happy is right. Now, this is the permeating notion. I'm not expressing it very well, actually. The permeating notion that undergirds everything in modern American life and really around the world, except in a few other Muslim countries, and this is what permeates. Now, now there's something to be said for that. You ought to do what you think is right to do. And you can't have an independent mind uh, and rebel against the culture if you don't have enough whatever it takes. My grandma would call it gumption to stand up to the culture and say, no, I think this is right. I understand that. And I'm a very much an individualist. You're gonna, you're respo- Most things that happen in your life, you're responsible for them. Even if you didn't cause them, you're responsible to fix them. You are. You have an individual responsibility. 
You have a responsibility according to some of the verses we're going to read in a moment. You have a responsibility to get out and work and make a living so you can help other people. So I believe in individual power. But I don't believe in raw individualism, naked individualism that says that your happiness is all that really matters in life. It's destructive. It's ungodly. And that's what is here. This is that spirit that must be renewed. The Christian has to have a different mindset than that. That other people's happiness and other relationships are valuable more so than always than my happiness. You can't find this example in the life of the Apostle Paul or any of the other apostles that, that their life was more valuable than anybody else's and their choices were the only ones that mattered. But you find this everywhere in America. And you know where you see it that really is disgusting? I expect this out of politicians and inter- Hollywood entertainers. I don't expect it out of so-called preachers, though. And so many of these megachurch preachers and non-megachurch preachers, their, only, their happiness is the only thing that matters. And they don't mind seducing different women in the church or even children in the church because it pleases them. There's some uh, branch of the Mormon church, and I, I know that Mormons would disavow this, so I don't mean it that way, but I read about it the other day. Uh, he's got a whole bunch of wives, this guy does, a cult out there. Uh, a couple of them are his daughters, his own teenage daughters. Why is, it, why is that? Just how many wives does one man need? Seriously, how many? Well, what the Bible says, he made one for one. But because of the hardness of men's heart, he let them have more. But, but you, he certainly doesn't condone you. Why is a man doing that? Because it makes him happy. It feeds his ego. And he gets put up. And then all of these religious people just, oh, he's such a godly man. Really? What standard are you using? Because he says nice words in the pulpit. Are you using the word of God to evaluate his character? You see. So this, this permeates the entire culture. But you Christians must renew your minds. You must learn to reject this way of thinking. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Where am I going to find out about this tr- true righteousness and holiness? Well, I, I think you'll know the answer to what I'm going to say. Where are you going to find it? You're going to find it in the text of the scripture, what this new man looks like. You're not going to find it in a psychology book. You're not going to find it in a self-help book. You're going to find it in the scripture, what an actual man looks like, what an actual woman that pleases God looks like. And it's very much not what you think it is. I'm I'm resisting a sidetrack here. So let me finish up and resist that. Sometimes I have to pause to to rein in my ranting. So Paul gets a little more specific. We don't have time to deal with all this in detail, but get a little more specific. Therefore, and we said in joking, you know, the old saying is when you see therefore, you should ask what it's there for. Well, what this is, he said, based on the fact that you're supposed to put off the old man and put on the new man and transform your mind in so doing. Therefore, putting away lying. Isn't that interesting that the first thing he says you have to put away is lying? Most common sin there is. People say, oh, no, it's fornication. It's the most common sin or whatever. No. Lying is the most common sin that we commit. And every single one of us do it. Lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Quote in the Old Testament. For we are members of one another. Now he's speaking of Christians. And so we emphasize this here over the years. We need to be WYSIWYG. Remember that old commuter term, WYSIWYG? What you see is what you get. We need to be that way with each other. 
We need to speak the truth with each other, not harshly, not self with self-interest, but when we like something, we say it. When we don't like something, we say it. When, when we're pleased, we say it. When we're unpleased, we say it. And so we tell the truth with each other. This isn't just speaking the truth about baptism to somebody. This is speaking the truth every day that you live with someone. Be angry and do not sin. It's okay to be angry. You're going to get angry, but don't sin when you're angry. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. This means fix your problems that come up right away. This is another, this anger issue is a huge issue for people. And it's just interesting to me that Paul singles these two things out right away at the top of his list, lying and anger. And so today, though, the idea is somebody's talking, well, I just need to vent. So I read something on the line of it's one of these neighborhood websites. I just need to vent. That's how the post started. I thought, this is going to be great. Probably ungodly, but it's going to be interesting to read. I just want to vent. Uh, and it was a vent. Nothing constructive in it. Just bleh. You know, that's what you do when you, it's more like a vomit. Just vomit up everything. And somehow it's supposed to make you feel better. Venting does not make you, it doesn't make me feel better. It makes me more angry when I vent. And that's what it does with most people. Just venting, just saying whatever comes to your mind, blurting out all kind of invectives and nasty negative things and insults, that doesn't help you. It doesn't get rid of it. It just reinforces it in your mind. It's okay to speak the truth, but he says be angry and do not sin. Oh, I'm going to, when I get mad, I just tell it like I see. I tell everybody, I just tell them off, give them a piece of my mind. Well, there's some piece of your mind that need to be thought carefully through, turned around before it comes out of your mouth. Before it comes out of your mouth, it needs to be thought about, and, and you need to, to be careful you don't sin. Or the other, the other extreme of that is holding it all in until, until you go shoot up the office one day. Hold it all in. That's not, that's being angry and sinning. But don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And so whatever there's a problem, I've talked about this in Bible class this morning. Her and I made an agreement. Coming up here 48 years in a month or two. But we were before about this time of year we made an agreement. Maybe I says we got engaged here 48 years ago, a couple weeks ago. We made an agreement with each other. We we're going to tell each other what we thought. We we're going to tell each other when we were upset. And we weren't going to hold back about that. We're going to speak the truth. And we weren't going to. Pro- we we're not going to get upset with each other when we do that. I made a promise to her that if she told me what she thought about something, I would not get upset with her about that. We would talk about it. Now that don't mean I can't be hurt by that. I didn't agree not to be hurt. I didn't agree not to. Li- I didn't agree to like it. I did agree to not punish her because she told me what she thought about something. And she made the same promise to me. And so that works. And so I had to force it out of her because she doesn't want to talk. Everything, you know, argue with myself about all this and bring it all out when she was up. Because I could say, you're not happy, and I don't understand. Well, well, I don't know. You know, what's wrong? I don't know. You upset? What's wrong? Nothing. You know, you know, you know the whole thing. But now she doesn't say that. I trust her now. I really trust her. That if I ask her, is something wrong? If she says nothing, I look at her, I give her that look, meaning I'm taking you at your word. I'm taking you at your word. 
And if there's something wrong, speak now, forever hold your peace. <laughs> that, that statement is used wrongly in marriage. But, but anyway, in the marriage, it's used at the wrong place in marriage. No, but I expect her to tell me. And if she says nothing, then I'm going to act on nothing. If she says nothing and there's something, she's just lied to me. And I say, lie is a bad word. Well, she's deceived me, and I can't act properly then. It's going to distort what I do, and it's going to make it worse. But we, we decided when we had a problem, we were going to take care of it that day if possible. And if we do that, and it happens that it can't be fixed, or it's too big a problem, she said something to me. Or I, she said, what's wrong? And I said, I, I, a lot. I'm really upset. You want to talk about it? I want to talk with you about it tomorrow. Not today, or whatever. We set a time. I'll talk with you about it then. And I kept that promise. And you know the dumbest thing is when I do that, by the time it comes around, when it actually comes out of my mouth. You ever had that experience? When it comes out of your mouth, it sounds so stupid. You wonder how in the world I was upset about that. But that happened to me many times. But you can't always do it just before the sun. Oh, it's, so here the sun sets at 5.28 p.m. this time of year, and it's 5.20, and... And uh, I find out I'm upset. So we got to solve this problem. We got, I said, we got eight minutes now. Let's get this all hammered out. Eight minutes. No, that's not what this means. This means don't let things carry over and carry over. Sometimes, yes, sometimes you do have to go to bed angry or you do have to put off till tomorrow to talk to a neighbor or a friend or a co-worker about something. But you, you determine you're going to do that and you, you bite the bullet and you do that. I tell someone to take a advice to a young man the other day talking about something he had to talk to somebody about or should. I said, well, you're just going to have to talk to them. And he's looking at me like, I can't. It's just too, too, uh, you know, I don't know what. I said, well, look, I've had this experience as a preacher. I just have to think about what I need to say. And then I just have to start talking as if I'm watching a movie and somebody else is talking. But it's, the words are coming out of this mouth, but I'm just observing the words coming out of this mouth. You can't. You just got to say it, okay? You just have to, if you want to do this, because if you don't do it, you give place to the devil. The devil finds that angry place, that place of resentment in your heart, and he begins to build fortifications around it, and you'll destroy your religion. Then he says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. So he tells us, we haven't got time to do all that. So he says here in the conclusion, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you and be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving, just as God in Christ forgave you. So you go from, from lies to truth. You go from anger to resolution. You go from stealing to giving. You go from corrupt speech to edification. You go from harshness to kindness. That's the list in this chapter. Can you do that? You can. Have you? I don't know. Because a lot of have the idea that Christianity, as long as I come to church or say nice things about Jesus, then I'm fine. No. This involves a complete transformation of your character. We invite you to think about that. And if we can help you this morning, uh, we need to move on here in our service. But if we can help you, come to the front and we'll talk with you about these things. Or perhaps we can pray with you about your situation. Maybe you need forgiveness for the things you've done. Maybe you need to, to start a new pathway, a new place in life, and you need to repent. Maybe you need this morning to become a Christian in the first place by being baptized into Christ. We can help you with those things right now as we sing this song. We're going to sing uh, number uh, 538, and we ask you to come to the front right now.
let's stand and sing.